My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Today we're continuing a series that we started last week called Minnesota Ice. It's looking at the question of how do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have better relationships than most people? How do we have great relationships that break through sort of this Minnesota nice, sort of fake niceness that marks so many of us in Minnesota? How do we break through even the Minnesota ice that sometimes could turn so cold and do that in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and even in our churches? And today we want to specifically look at how do we do this in our neighborhoods, the places where we live, or at least where we sleep, Because many of us live at work and at school and all these other places. How do we do this in the places that are closest to the places where we sleep? And I want to start off this morning by reading a story. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. I want to start off by reading a story that I read in one of the books we're recommending. It's called Next Door As It Is in Heaven. I want to briefly read to you the story of a small town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. In the early 1960s, a happenstance conversation over beers one evening between two doctors was the precursor to what would become known as the Rosetto Effect. A local physician casually mentioned to the head of the medicine, head of medicine at University of Oklahoma, that it seemed as if heart disease was rarer in his town of Rosetto, a small village nestled in the hills of eastern Pennsylvania named for the Italian city that are the roots of its founders. It was lower there than in comparison to nearby cities. Researchers began an extensive study of Rosetto, discovering a near-zero cardiac mortality rate for men aged 55 to 54. For men above 65, the, the local death rate was half the national average. Why did this diminutive Italian immigrant settlement boast such extraordinary heart health? Researchers assumed that the answer lay in diet, exercise, and labor habits. But investigators were stunned to discover this wasn't the case at all. The citizens drank plenty of wine and subsisted on classic Italian foods, rich with cholesterol-laden pastas and sausages deep-fried in animal fat. Smoking was a daily habit for the men who worked in back-breaking toxic conditions in the local quarry. None of this made sense to the researchers. The medical field was stumped microscopes would not be able to solve the mystery. So they brought in clipboard-carrying sociologists who visited with town officials and went door-to-door to interview the Rosetto citizens. Several unusual elements caught the eye of the researchers. For starters, the crime rate was zero. And there was absolutely no applications for public assistance. Yes, you heard that right. No crime and no social services requested. Not a zilch. A rich community-wide social life was practiced, not divided along economic or educational lines. The haves and the have-nots played, partied, and prayed together. The wealthy did not flaunt their affluence and seemed to make a conscious effort to avoid doing so. Facebook hadn't been invented yet. That's not in there. Local businesses received virtually all patronage of the townsfolks, despite larger stores nearby and surrounding towns. Although families were close-knit and took special care of their own, researchers discovered a spirit of assistance, friendly concern, and a tangible regard for neighbors and non-family as well as family. It seemed to the examiners that no one was alone. The elderly were not placed in institutions. And were actually installed as informal judges and arbitrators in everyday life and commerce. 
the medical community was left to conclude that the secret of such astonishingly high cardiac health in individuals in Rosetto was because of the community heart that beat for one another. The people in the community had healthy hearts because the community had a heart for one another. I want to pause there in the story for just a second. This should sound very familiar to those of you who spent any time looking at the, the church in, in the Bible. The New Testament church looked a lot like this. This is what it was meant to be. This is how Christians were meant to treat each other to the point that people took up notice. The people went, what is going on there? In fact, all throughout the history of the people of God, this is how we were supposed to treat each other. So remarkably that it so impacted our lives that people took notice and went, what is going on? But let's continue the story. Sadly, the Rosetto effect would not last. In 1963, researchers keenly predicted that as Rosettans became more Americanized, meaning less close, less modest, less interdependent, they would also become less healthy. The American Journal of Public Health revisited Rosetto in 1992 and found that Rosettans suffered the same statistical rate of heart disease as neighboring cities. What had happened? Well, single-family homes had become the new norm. Fences appeared, and churches moved to the outskirts of town. Community fabric wore thin, and with it, the sheltering warmth it had provided. What an interesting little microcosm, an interesting little story, but I don't think this story is isolated. I think this story was replayed in communities throughout the United States within the last hundred years of our history as new immigrants came in and experienced a deep community and then became enmeshed in our systems. And the research backs that up. In May of 2018, last year, Cigna released the following study that they had done of Americans. They said that nearly a half of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. More than half of the survey respondents said they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. Two in five Americans sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they're isolated from others. One in five people report that they rarely or never feel close to people or feel like they have people that they can talk to. Only half of Americans, 53%, have meaningful in-person social interactions, such as having an extended conversation with a friend or family member on a regular basis. I think we might be tempted to think that, that these studies were maybe skewed as we were you know, interviewing older Americans or people in retirement facilities or those sorts of things. But what they found was that it's actually Generation Z, adults ages 18 to 22, that are the loneliest generation and appear to be in the worst health than the older generations. And we can dismiss that and say, well, yeah, I mean, they spend all their time on the phone, on their devices. No wonder they're but interestingly, social media use alone is not a predictor of loneliness, according to this study. Respondents defined as very heavy users of social media have a loneliness score that is not markedly different from the score of those who never use social media, ever. In our culture, in our cities, and in our neighborhoods, we're surrounded by people, and yet many of us feel alone. That is the reality for many in our culture, something like half of the people in our culture and in our neighborhoods. And the health effects of our relational breakdown in our culture and in our neighborhoods has real effects on our health, both mentally and actually physically as well. The authors of that next door book that I talked about add this. Our homes become our castles. Our fences become our moats. Our gates open only from the inside. Though we are touted as the richest country in the world, the United States is statistically the most medicated 
as well. It rings true. I think science is just now learning what the Bible, what Scripture has taught for thousands of years. Relationships really matter. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Loving one another matters. It impacts not just how we feel, but literally our health as well. And conversely, therefore, living for ourselves, living in isolation, living with this feeling of aloneness is literally killing us, not just spiritually, but physically as well. Jesus spoke to this directly. Last week, Caitlin showed us one instance uh, that we looked at from the Gospel of Mark, where where a young law expert came to Jesus and asked him this question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Which Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than this. Last week, Caitlin posed a couple of, I think, really important and helpful questions to us. One of them was this. What if Jesus actually meant we were supposed to love our actual neighbors? Not the theoretical neighbors, not the hypothetical neighbors, not the neighbors just that are across the sea and are safe because we can send a check, but the people that are actually in our lives, the people we touch and come into contact with on a regular basis. And then secondly, if Jesus says that this is the greatest commandment, then what needs to change in our life to make this the greatest priority? Last week, Caitlin introduced us to the neighborhood bingo card. I appear to have lost mine. Here we go. The neighborhood bingo card. Does anyone have this? Does anyone remember this? Did anyone fill this out? Come on. Show of hands. I'm seeing one, two. Come on, people. Engage. <laughs> we introduced this card. It's actually from the, the authors of The Art of Neighboring. And the idea is this. You write your own name in that center spot. That's your house. And then you write the names of the neighbors that live in all of the houses around you. That's the first thing you do. A, you write their name. And for many of us, that alone is going to be a challenge, right? It may actually involve us having a conversation to find out their names. Because it turns out it's hard to love people if you don't even know their name, right? And then B, you're supposed to write down something about that person that you can't learn simply from looking from your driveway at their yard or their driveway. Like, they drive a yellow car, or apparently they don't care about lawn work, (laughs) It has to be something more significant than that. And then finally, C, the one that's perhaps most difficult, is you have to actually learn something, write down something that's actually significant to them. What are their dreams? What are their hopes? What do they want to do? What are their ambitions in life? What are maybe some of their fears, failures, or hurts? And those take time. That takes real relationship. If you're getting to that point with people, you're actually getting to know them the real them, and not just their car or their lawn care habits. The authors jokingly call this the card of shame. Because it turns out most of us aren't very good at this. Only a fraction of people can even write down the names of the people on their block. Kara and I did this after last Sunday, and we felt pretty good. Like, we know most of the names. Like, that's Ted and maybe Melissa (laughs) that live over there. But we knew a lot of the names. But there was one neighbor we definitely didn't. No, the neighbor directly behind us. And it forced us to kind of face the fact that I don't really want to love that guy. I don't even really want to know that guy. We moved into our neighborhood about 14 years ago. And we got to know a number of the neighbors, you know, immediately, casually, in Minnesota, nice. 
But there was this one guy, this guy behind us, who was this, lived in this huge house all by himself, this kind of just weird middle-aged guy in this huge house all by himself, and we never saw him except for the strangest times. Like, never during the day, never during the daylight, but his, night, his lights were on all night long. Like, what is he doing in there? What is going on? We had all these theories. And then we realized, of course, what everyone probably realizes, he's a vampire. <laughs> I think that's the only conclusion that we could draw. And we have this great hill in our backyard. We have a photo. And so when we moved into this house, you can see we got a great play yard and play thing, and there's this great hill. And so we were so excited that our kids would have this amazing hill that they could play on and ride their bikes down and sled down in the winter. But there was a problem. We soon discovered that while that hill looks like it's in my yard, it's actually the neighbor's property. And so the very first interaction we had with this guy, I think, my wife's here, she can back this up, was we had friends over for dinner one summer night. We're sitting in the backyard, and the kids, the toddlers, are just playing on this hill, just having a, you know, minding their own business. But suddenly the neighbor comes through his backyard and starts just screaming, not at us, but at our kids, about lawsuits and get off my property. If you get hurt, blah, 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 blah. And we're left, like, going, hi, welcome to the neighborhood. (laughs) And we're trying to explain this neighbor to our friends. Then that winter, in a very similar story, we had friends over, and and it was in the evening, and the kids had gone outside to play, and we didn't really know what they were doing, but apparently they were sledding on this back hill. We knew nothing about it. I mean, the kids came in, and they were covered in their snowsuits, and blah, 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 blah. We don't know anything about it until the next morning, when we walked downstairs, and we realized that sometime between 11 p.m. when our friends left the middle of the night, in the middle of the winter, and 7 a.m. when our kids woke us up, this neighbor had gone to the hill and had driven metal spikes all over the entire hill. (laughs) The message was very clear. He did in the middle of the night. No conversation, no anything, just spikes in the middle of the lawn. And And I realized, I'm not sure I want to know this guy. And so, no, I know this is a pastor story, so now's the part where I'm supposed to say, and then a miracle happened. <laughs> and then the ice was broken, and now we're best friends, and we have tea regularly, and our hill is the neighborhood sledding destination. But we're not there yet. The truth is, now, a decade later, I've never spoken to this guy again. And the truth is, spring came, and the snow melted, and he removed the spikes, and that was the last time he ever mowed the lawn <laughs> in the back. I don't know this guy, and frankly, I don't necessarily really want to. I don't know his name. I don't know his story. I don't know what he does and why he does it in the middle of the night. (laughs) I don't know the hurt that he has experienced that has caused him to be that guarded and that angry and that non-confrontational. And at some point, I chose to write him off and say, you know what, I'll just invest in everybody else. But according to Jesus, according to Caitlin last week, and according to the book of Mark, and according to, I guess, the whole Bible, (laughs) I'm supposed to love that guy like I love myself, and I'm not there yet. Well, like I said, last week we looked at this account from the Gospel of Mark. And today I want to look at a very similar story that happens that appears in the book of Luke. So I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And we're actually going to start almost all the way at the end of the chapter in verse 25. And these words will sound familiar, and yet there's also some marked differences from the account last week in Mark. Here we go, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher... What should I do to inherit eternal life? You remember last week it was, what's the most important? What's the greatest commandment? What should I do to inherit eternal life? I think most of us have always understood this question to mean, what do I need to do to ensure that I can go to heaven when I die? Right? I mean, that's the question we expect because that's that's the question that we've always heard. But if that's the question that Jesus heard, we would have expected him to answer with the Sunday school answer. Confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. 
you have a little altar call right there by the roadside. That's the answer we expect because that's the answer we've always heard and because that's perhaps an indication that we've misunderstood the question. It's not the answer that Jesus gives. The Greek word for life that this man uses is zoin, which according to the Greek lexicon that I use, means something more like to live life emphatically in the messianic sense, to enjoy real life, to have true life and worthy of the name, active, blessed, endless in the kingdom of God. This guy isn't primarily asking, how do I get into heaven when I die? He's saying right now in this life, how do I find life that's meaningful, that has purpose, that is actually satisfying, the life that I was meant to live? Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, notice it's the man answering, not Jesus saying to him. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. This expert in the law is asking, is there more than this to life? How do I find real life, life that is life-giving, life the way it's meant to be? And I think that's the same question that a lot of our neighbors are asking. The many in this room are asking. And to that question, Jesus says that if we love God with everything we have, if we love our neighbors and ourselves, then we get to have that real, meaningful, joyful, full life. Life that is worthy of the name. The kind of life that we're designed for. The kind of life that we've been longing for. And we can have it now. Sounds compelling. So how does this guy respond? Looking Jesus right in the face. How does this guy respond? Like, I'm in. Sign me up. No. It says, the man wanted to justify his actions. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I'm not sure what actions. Luke doesn't tell us what actions he was trying to justify. But apparently it had something to do with the way that he saw and treated and loved his neighbors. Right? And this guy had already answered the question. He was one who told Jesus that the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. He knows this stuff. But yet here in this conversation, with Jesus right in the face, he's trying to find loopholes. You know, it's easy to villainize the people in these gospel stories like, oh, I never would have done that. But the truth is, I can identify with this guy. Uh, maybe you can too. I mean, many of us have heard this whole, the same message our whole lives about loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And yet we find ways to find loopholes. We find ways to justify. I have found ways to justify feeling the way that I feel about the vampire who lives behind me. He brought this on himself. He's the one who chose... I've justified the feelings that I have toward him. I have said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell a story that we've come to know as the good Samaritan, but would actually probably more aptly be called the good neighbor. Because that's why Jesus tells it. That's the point he's trying to illustrate. What does it look like to actually be a good neighbor, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? And he tells this story. And the hero of the story isn't a religious leader, he isn't a priest, he isn't a Levite, he isn't even a Jew. He's a despised Samaritan, like the bad guy in every Jewish children's story. And yet Jesus points to him and says, that's the exemplary neighbor. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, according to me. Because he was the one who actually paused his life, paused his priorities, paused whatever busyness he was about, and used his resources and his time, made himself vulnerable to this stranger who he didn't know who was wounded. The stranger who would have probably hated him as a Samaritan in any other circumstance. But he chose to go and to act and to risk his own comfort 
to do it. And then the parable ends with Jesus again asking the man a question. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. I think by asking this guy questions, Jesus is saying to him, you know what? You, you know this. You've heard this your whole life. Now stop saying you believe it and actually go out and do it. One commentary said it this way. The parable turns the whole question around. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? In the hope that some people are not. And Jesus replies, just be a neighbor wherever you are needed and realize that neighbors can come from surprising places. Well, this isn't the first time in Luke that Jesus has kind of said that message of now just go and do it. In fact, it's not even the first time in this chapter that Jesus says go and do it. I want to go back all the way to the beginning of the chapter, back to verse 1. We'll see another story where Jesus is similarly sending out his people. Chapter 10, verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them out ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. In the previous chapter, chapter 9, Jesus had gathered his 12 disciples and he had empowered them and authorized them, given the authority and the power to go out and cast out demons and to heal the sick and to proclaim the good news in the villages and the towns around them. And then it had sent them and I said, go, do that. Now here in chapter 10, he's gathered 72. He's expanded the ministry to say this isn't simply limited to professionals. This isn't limited to my inner circle. This is the mission of all disciples. And he sent them out and he said, go to all the places that I plan to go. I think these passages, these stories feel so ancient to us. But they're given to us as a model. I think Jesus wants to go to the workplaces and the neighborhoods and the places that we go. And he's sending us out into those neighborhoods to do the work that he sent those disciples to do, to be his presence, to be his hands and feet by the power of his Holy Spirit, to be incarnational as Jesus was incarnational in our neighborhoods. Alan Hirsch, in his book, The Forgotten Way, says it this way. If God's central way of reaching his world was to incarnate himself in Jesus, then our way of reaching the world should likewise be incarnational to be present, to be embodied in our neighborhoods. We have to be in our neighborhoods and in the lives of the people around us, all followers of Jesus, all disciples of Jesus, no matter your gifting, no matter your preference, no matter your personality, no matter whether you're an introvert or extrovert, are called to represent Jesus in our contexts. I think there's something else that we can note from this one verse passage. Note that Jesus sends them out in pairs. There's a place to write that in your notes. It's an interesting detail, right? I think in including that detail, Luke is letting us know that Jesus knew that this work was going to be hard, that it wasn't going to be simple, that they would need one another in order to accomplish it, for strength, for encouragement, for accountability. So what does that look like in, in our context? Well, for us, I think it also means we aren't to do this alone. We are to do this with one another, and that might mean your spouse or your roommate in your neighborhood. But perhaps it's more than that. One of the things that we learned learned because we already knew it (laughs) in doing this neighborhood chart is that the two houses that are directly across the street from us we know that they are christians and i don't mean like culturally christian like go to christmas and easter services i mean like died in the wool i think they're more committed than i am (laughs) they're like the real deal christians and the truth is i've never been in their homes 
The truth is, I can't write down the names of any of their children. None. I think one of them has been in our house one time when we had Papa Murphy's Pizza. I don't know these people. I'm, I'm not good at that. And I'm an extrovert. I love people. But my home is my castle. Jesus says, pairs up, pair up. Find the neighbors in your neighborhood who love Jesus and get to know them. Start filling out your bingo card with their information. I mean, how, how are we to have conversations? If we can't have conversations with people who love Jesus and who believe basically all the same things we do, how on earth do we engage people who think that everything we believe is a bunch of hogwash? I just said hogwash. <laughs> right? Get to know them first, if that feels safer to you. Get to know them and have conversations about what it means to be salt and light in your neighborhood. Talk to them about how you might engage together, working together, engage your neighborhood to be a place of hope. One of the stories that they tell in this book that I absolutely love, because this is the kind of personality I have, is that one of these authors said they actually started doing this in the neighborhood. They called them cornbread suppers, where every Monday night, they just they and a couple of neighbors all agreed there was a rotation of houses that they would simply say, on Monday nights, our house is open. It's a potluck called cornbread supper. And the rules were very simple. They were these. You could bring anything or anyone you like, you don't have to bring anything or anyone. <laughs> kind of writes off, number one. You can bring a bottle or a dish. There's no program, no agenda. Just eat, talk, laugh, and trade stories. No RSVPs are required, and all are welcome. I think the extroverts in the room are like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and my wife is going, oh, honey. <laughs> There's actually a website that I've included in your notes where they kind of give more details about how they experienced this, what this looked like when they lived it out in their community and continued to live it out in their communities. So I'm not, I don't know if that's what it is for you, but maybe talk to your neighbors. Maybe it's throwing kind of a block party with some of your neighbors, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. We actually have a, a, a resource out at the resource table that is just a block party block party kit. Now, you don't get like inflatables or anything. It's just instructions, some ideas of what that could look like in your neighborhood. So check that out. But back, back to the Bible. Oh, this is an important point. I wrote down in my notes. Remember, if we do neighborhood really, really well, then we get to eat as much sausage as we want, and it won't hurt us. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> That's an important point. I'm just saying. But back to the Bible. <laughs> So Jesus sent them out in pairs. And then I think the next verse that he includes, that Luke includes, is really important, verse 2. These are his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Jesus is saying the harvest is great. The problem isn't the harvest. The harvest is ready. People are hungry. They're hungry for relationship. They're hungry for hope. They're hungry for restoration, to find a greater purpose, to have relationship in their lives. The problem isn't the harvest. The problem, according to Jesus, is that the, the workers are few. The harvest is ripe, but there aren't enough people willing to go out there and take the risk of going into the field to help collect. And so what does Jesus provide as the answer to that problem? Prayer. He says, pray to the God who is in charge of the harvest. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I think in part it means that, that we have a better sense from this of exactly what we're called to, but also what we aren't called to. There's a place to write this in your note. We aren't in charge of the harvest. God is. And I think there's a relief in that, right? We aren't called to fix everything. We aren't called to be all in all to all of our neighbors. We aren't called to have eight new best friends in a circle around our house. God is in charge of the harvest. 
But we have a role to play. There's a right place to write this in your notes. We are called to pray to the one who is in charge and ask him to send workers, to send neighbors, to send others in our lives who will join us in that journey of going into our neighborhoods. And there's a place to write this down. We are called to not just pray, but to go be workers. To be incarnational in our neighborhoods. Lance Ford and Brad Briscoe in their book Next Door, as I mentioned earlier, they say it this way. If there's any possibility for human flourishing in a dislocated, isolated world, it begins when God's love is embodied in us and enacted through us. Just as God took on flesh in the person of Jesus in order to dwell among us and to identify with us, we, as the body of Christ, are to incarnate ourselves into the places we live, to embody Christ in the places that we live. Jesus says, pray and then go, trusting that the God who is in charge of the harvest will give us everything we need to fulfill our role, whatever that role is. We want to share with you a brief story via video of one of our members, Carol Rollins, and how she has has learned to experience this over the last couple of years. Let's watch. My name is Carol Rollins, and my husband Rich and I have been at Emmanuel for a little over 10 years now. It really met our needs um, when we were looking for a new church. When um, we were members of the Shoreview Y, they put out a senior paper, and they were looking for women to lead a women's Bible study there. So I thought, "Mm, I don't think I could do that. I read the article again, and there was a little bit of a prompting there saying, yes, you could do that. So I went to the initial meeting. And there were a couple of other ladies there that were willing to do that. And that made me feel a little bit better about agreeing to go ahead because I knew I'd have help and I'd have support. So over a period of time of four years, um, other women and I shared the responsibility of leading that Bible study. And then we moved to Applewood in Roseville, and there, there was no Bible study there. Applewood is a 55 and older senior living uh, community. I get lazy sometimes that I'm not reading the Bible as often as I should. And I thought to myself, well, if I could find somebody to lead a Bible study here with me, that would force the discipline. (laughs) And because you have to prepare for that Bible study. And sure enough, I've had, again, help in leading it. And um, it's been a really good experience. And people keep thanking me for leading the Bible study, which, you know, reinforces me. So it's been a really good experience. As you age, you start seeing things differently and you have different questions. So we have some really lively discussions, which is wonderful because then we're all learning. Then we're all learning. Our church did a series on trafficking, human trafficking. But I was really touched by that series, thinking... Okay, I'm 70 years old. I walk with the cane. What can I do? You know, there was a a quote from a woman um, who who was a pastor. And she said, it's not all about comparing what you're doing for the kingdom. It's all about doing what you can do for the kingdom. And that pleases God. Camden House is a like a safe house or a refuge house for women who have been um, rescued from trafficking. And so they're in a pretty precarious 
situation. You know, life is not so good for them right now. The women there would love to have a meal made for them periodically. And I thought, oh, I can cook. And so I brought this to the Bible study. Twice a month is all we do it. Um, and making a meal, helping me put together a meal that can be taken over to Camden House for the eight women who live there. It's really, really rewarding for everyone concerned. Because of my reluctance <laughs> to lead a Bible study or you know, to do ministry or whatever, just because I'm nervous about it and I don't think I'll do it right and whatever, um, I, I have learned over the years, you're never too old to do the Lord's work. And in this case, it's baking cookies or whatever. <laughs> you know, putting a meal together. I just love that story so much. It was fun getting to know Carol a little bit in this journey and to see how in this story she's doing exactly the things we're talking about. She identified a real need in the community that maybe she wasn't all that comfortable actually meeting. And yet she said, okay, I'll do it. And she paired up. She found others who would join her in that journey. And as a result, she got to experience real life, but then she got to invite others to do it with her. And she said that at the Y and even in this housing now, she's meeting people that come from all kinds of, bringing women to these studies that are all kinds of different faith backgrounds. And then she and these women that she's now invited or involved in this ministry, they would have never imagined they could be involved in. Working with providing meals for women who have escaped trafficking? She never would have called that in a million years. And yet because of her Willingness to faithfully pray and go, she's experiencing that kind of transformation. That's what it looks like for Carol. What might it look like for us in our context, in our neighborhoods, with our neighbors? I want to be really clear on one point, and this is something that as we were preparing for this series, uh, that, that was a concern for me. I want to communicate. How do we do this in a way that doesn't turn our neighbors into projects? Right? I want to be really, really clear. We're not going into our neighborhoods targeting people to make them converse. Jesus didn't say, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and convert your neighbors. Right? He said, love your neighbors as you love yourself. I'm in charge of the harvest. We aren't going to make people into projects. We're going to make strangers into friends. We're going to make real relationships and to bring all of ourselves, including our faith, into those relationships. We bring the experience of God, the power of God, into these relationships with us. We bring the kingdom of God into these relationships with us. The authors of The Art of Neighboring made a really helpful distinction for me and kind of this tension I feel of, does it feel disingenuous? I mean, am I just targeting these people so I can convert them, right? They said there's a huge distinction between ulterior motives and ultimate motivations. That we never want to go into these relationships with the ulterior motive. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to make a relationship so I can convert you. You're my target. But we can go in with the ultimate motivation of knowing I want to bring them into the experience of life that I have found. I want to offer them the hope that I have found. I'm going to bring all of myself to these conversations. I'm going to love them and proclaim with my actions and my presence and even sometimes maybe with my words. That the kingdom of God is near. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. I'll share one other quote. It says this. The ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. But the ultimate motive is just that. To share the story of Jesus and his impact on our lives. That's helpful for me. So practically speaking, what 
would this look like for us? We saw what it looked like for Carol, and that's wonderful. What does it look like for us? It's almost summer. The Minnesota ice has literally broken. There were people on the deck today for the first time, which is absolutely wonderful. And I think it's going to be super distracting to me when I'm preaching. (laughs) Right? Summer is the one time of the year the Minnesotans actually leave their houses, do yard work. We actually venture out into nature. Right? And summer is like six minutes long. Right? The Minnesota motto should be something like, spring is here, but winter's coming. (laughs) How do we take advantage of this small window to intentionally become Great neighbors. We know that we can't actively love everyone in our lives. We don't have the capacity. We're not even called to do that. We're not called, as I said, to have eight new best friends in the houses that surround us. So what do we do? What are some first steps, some next steps that we can take to grow in the art of neighboring? Here's a collection. The books that we recommended to you are awesome. Buy them. Read them. They're great. They're easy reads. I read them. All right? Here's one. The Neighborhood Bingo Card. Apparently none of you did that, except for like three people. (laughs) So take the time this week to pull it out and just write down even the name of one neighbor. Okay? The the authors of The Art of Neighbor say it this way. They're saying it more harshly than I am, so I'll let them speak it. They say this. Make it a priority to fill in at least one new name this week. If you don't feel like you have a time to do this, then take out your calendar and answer this question. Is everything that I'm currently doing more important than taking the great commandment literally? (laughs) Right? It's kind of a punch in the gut. But they bring up a good point. I mean, not only is this what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, the greatest priority that should be in our lives, but he also said that if we do this, this is how we get to experience real, meaningful purpose in our lives. This is good for us, for our health. This is what real life looks like. Why wouldn't we want to experience that and be able to share that life with the people around us? Number two, pray and then go. As I was walking around our neighborhood that first night with Kara, because our neighborhood isn't doing this yet, so I need to get some exercise. <laughs> um, we were walking around the neighborhood, and we were just talking about what, what might this look like in our neighborhood. And that's point three. Take a walk. Identify who are those people in your, in, in your neighborhood that are Christian. Who are the people that you don't know? Who are the ones that love to throw parties? Because maybe they want to throw a party. And you could be a part of helping make it happen. But pair up. For Kara and I, That is clearly a next step in our neighborhoods. We know that there are Christians, and we need to begin to dream and to pray about how we can work together to be light in our neighborhood, to be salt in our neighborhood, to be a blessing to our neighbors, so that we might be good neighbors to one another and to the neighbors surrounding us. Number five, throw a party. I know this isn't for everybody, but for some of you, it's going to be awesome. Summer is a great time to open up the garage, put out some tables, and say, come on over. We want to get to know you. Throw the best party on the block. Not necessarily like the craziest, biggest, most expensive party. Do it as a potluck. Those are awesome. Our neighborhood actually does that pretty well. And we need to engage in that more. Again, there's a block party kit that's out of the table that I think would be a great first step. Have a dinner. Maybe you're not up for a party. Commit to one invitation this summer. Maybe it's not a huge party, but maybe it's one family that has kids the same age as you or has the same life stage or or you've seen building a model train and you like model trains. I I don't know. Find something and invite that person or those people to come to your house for a dinner. You know where Jesus did most of his ministry in the book of Luke? Over a meal. That's what incarnational ministry looked like for Jesus. And what it can look like for us. Here's the truth. You eat several times a day. (laughs) One of these times, invite someone to join you in that. 
I think one of the things, again, it's in this book and it's not in my notes, so I shouldn't be doing this. But one of the things they point out is a lot of times we don't do that because we're self-conscious about ourselves. We're self-conscious about, well, what if the food isn't good enough? What if my house isn't clean enough? What if it's not fancy enough? All of that, which I get because we feel that, all of that is an indication that at that point we are very self-conscious. It's an invitation to say, what if you were God-conscious? What if you were neighbor-conscious? I don't say that to pile on guilt, but to say that's a natural barrier. If we can identify it, we can get past it. Not on my notes. All right. <laughs> Here's another one. Take out your earbuds, right? Someone saw that in the notes, like, what does that mean? It means that when we are in our lawns working with earbuds in our ears, we are sending the message, I got everything I need. Please don't bother me. I'm just living in my own world up in here, <laughs> right? Take the earbuds out. Mow the lawn and just look for the neighbors that are in your yard. Look for the neighbors not in your yard. That'd be weird. I got into trouble doing that. <laughs> look for the neighbors that are in their yards. Look for those opportunities. Have your radar up, your eyes up to where do I have that moment? You know, Caitlin last week said, go to the mailbox when your neighbors are out there instead of waiting till they aren't. I think it's a great point. Next one, get that drink. She also pointed out that a lot of times in Minnesota, we say something like, hey, we should get lunch sometime. Hey, we should. And what we mean is like, oh, don't ever take me up on that. Take them up on that. Follow up on that. Say, hey, I'd love to get coffee sometime. Hey, why don't you come over? We're just making lemonade in the backyard. We're doing s'mores. You know, whatever that is. Lean into that opportunity that is so Minnesota nice and take it to the next level of saying, no, let's actually experience that. Get creative is the next one. These books are really fun, full of fun ideas. And I don't know what your neighbor looks like, but, but get creative with it. What are the things that you love to do? Carol loves to cook, and so cooking became one of those vehicles by which she could do this. Carol loved to do Bible studies. And for some of you, that might be a great way. There are people in your neighborhood who might actually want to do that. But what is it that you love to do? Was it golf or is it fishing or is it hunting or is it working in your car? Is it building model trains? I don't know, but do whatever you love to do and then find a way to invite others into it. Take what you love and invite your neighbors into it. I don't know what your next steps are. But for me, in this process, I'm doing several of those things. I mean, I'm super extroverted and so I love throwing parties and inviting neighbors and all that kind of stuff. That's not going to be hard. The one that's going to be hard for me in all of this it's figuring out how to pray for and how to love and how to reach out and how to take a first step with my backyard vampire. How do I love a vampire? I don't know what, how it's going to turn out. We may not ever have tea. He may not become my best friend. We might not ever have another sledding party in our backyard. Maybe I'll talk to him and reach out and the next morning I'll come out and the entire yard is filled with metal stakes. <laughs> it's a possibility. I don't know, but I know that I'm called to pray. And I'm called to somehow go into that, trusting that the Lord of the harvest, who's in charge of the harvest, has gone ahead of me. That he's at work in that guy's life in the same way that he's at work in mine. That he'll give me everything that I need. The same God who empowers his disciples to cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead can empower one conversation. Right? We'll see how it goes from there. The goal of all of this isn't, isn't that we would spend our entire summer getting to have like eight more super fake Minnesota nice friendships. That's not anybody's goal in this. You don't need that. They don't need that. But it might be where we need to start. Maybe it needs to start with, hey, how's it going? How about that weather? How about those twins? Start there, but don't let it stay there. Be the one who's willing to be vulnerable. Be the one who's willing to say, hey, why don't you guys come over for s'mores? Come over for dinner. Here, we're having a barbecue. We'd love to have you. Take that next first step in the people in your neighborhood's lives. 
The goal is to be willing to begin to build maybe one or two truly meaningful, truly deep, truly beyond the Minnesota nice relationships. And it might be Minnesota awkward. (laughs) And that's okay. Risk being vulnerable. The Lord of the harvest goes with you. It's going into our neighborhoods, into the lives of the people around us where we can provide. And in providing, also get to experience the kind of deep, meaningful kingdom, eternal life that Jesus promises will be ours if we love God with all our hearts, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. The neighbors that are on this card. Let me pray for us. God, I know that we come from lots of different neighborhoods in this room. We come from apartments and senior living. We come from single family homes. We come from suburbs and we come from cities. We come from neighborhoods who are really good at this, who are just killing it, who love each other and support each other really well. And God, we thank you for that. And God, we we ask that you would send us out into those fields as harvesters, ready to bring your good news, ready to bring the kingdom into those neighborhoods, to point people to you, the author and creator of life, to say that there's even more. But we also know, God, that many of us come from neighborhoods where that isn't yet a reality. God, we thank you for the privilege of being called to go into those neighborhoods and speak your truth, to speak that the kingdom is here, but to also model that. And God, we acknowledge that it's scary to do that. It's scary to know that we are going out as lambs into a world that is full of wolves. And we might get our hands slapped. We might get our feelings hurt. We might be rejected. God, give us the courage. Give us the compassion. Give us the love that would drive us to have real relationships with our neighbors. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.